we talked a, a little bit about Paul's words to Timothy concerning resisting the spirit of fear. He says to Timothy to remember that God is not the author of the fear that Timothy is battling. This word fear actually uh, refers to timidity that could lead to a breakdown under pressure. He says, God's not ever in that. But he's given you uh, the opposite. And Paul lists the opposites as power, love, and a sound mind. And we tend, in our Western way of categorizing, to think that Paul's referring here to three separate entities, three separate uh, forces. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that power, love, and a sound mind are all part of a spectrum. In other words, don't think of it as three separate forces, three separate flows of energy, but they are one flow of energy, and they uh, begin with power, which is the presence of God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, so this power or presence, the first thing he will do in us is to help us begin to walk in love. And love casts out all fear, which produces a sound mind. We spoke, spoke earlier about the power being the presence. And, and I believe that the stresses that we're facing in our life now are, are being allowed by the Lord in order to bring us to the place where we will have to live dependent on the presence of God, listening to God, drawing near to God, loving God and learning to love others, including the world the way God's heart loves the world. This drives fear out of us, which automatically produces in us a sound mind. But even though I want you to think of power, love, and a sound mind as all woven together, we're going to have to look at each one of them uh, individually. We've already looked at power, and we've mentioned love. Our main focus in this session is on the meaning of a sound mind, but it's going to take us a bit to get to it. There is a, a dance in the New Testament narrative between the power of God and our weakness. If you remove our weakness from the story, the story ceases to exist. If you remove God's power from the story, the story ceases to exist. It takes both our weakness and God's strength to produce not only the New Testament, but the outflow of the truth of the New Testament, which is our own lives also. We're just a, an ongoing uh, manifestation of that truth. Uh, just as surely as there are supernatural demonstrations of awesome power from God, both in Scripture and in our lives, there are just as many times when the power is not demonstrative and uh, dramatic, that doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, in fact, when it's quiet and invisible and lacking an outward display of drama, uh, it may be uh, even more dramatic in the outcome. We know a, a good bit about outward power because our flesh likes that. I mean, men especially. I mean, I like it. I like it when Raiders of the Lost Ark, the power of God comes down and destroys the Nazis. I love that. But you know what? Uh, 
if you if you only have those kind of manifestations of power in the new covenant uh, record of the history of God's people, a lot of your Bible would disappear. We don't live in those high moments, although some charismatic teaching would have you think that that's just the norm. You know, you should just live your whole life with just fire flowing out of your fingertips and uh, angels appearing and disappearing in your kitchen. And I thank God for angels in my kitchen. Lord knows sometimes I've needed them lately. But uh, the fact is, the daily life of the people of God in the New Testament manifests a quiet, gentle, ever-present power that carries them on through the drudgery and difficulty and even confrontations with death that uh, ends in life. you got to remember Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, which first lists God's supernatural, powerful interventions as a result of faith, but then lists a much larger, longer list of those whose uh, power, whose strength, whose faith was demonstrated by not having uh, a big demonstration of power. Now, in Second Timothy 4, verses 9 through 17, if you get some time, please read that whole section there. But Paul is listing all the people that have left him. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, he says. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. At my first trial, nobody stood with me, but all men forsook me. Then he says, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. We're still talking about strength that comes from knowing God. And of all the things that we may need strength to face, I don't know of too many things that can drain the life out of you like abandonment and betrayal. Uh, I've seen the Holy Spirit do some wonderful, amazing, miraculous things, and I'm grateful for them. And some, I mean, I've seen him do them for other people, and he's done them for me. But I can tell you that nothing, has been more demonstrative to me of the faithfulness of God and the power of God than the fact that he has been able to sustain me through times when it seemed like every human prop was knocked out from under me and there was no place to turn but him. In my weakness, his strength was made perfect. And Paul is referring to that here. Now, I mentioned a while ago, uh, I want to say it more clearly, there, there's a dance in the New Testament narrative that includes both our human frailty and the superhuman presence that has come into our frailty. In fact, if you read the stories in the, of the New Testament, you realize that there could be no story at all without both of these elements. The core of the story, the incarnation of God as the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to earth, dies and rises again, This is the prototype of our entire journey through life also. He comes and makes a Bethlehem in us, incarnates himself in us, sets in motion the same redeeming process which he established in his original redemptive act of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. He lives in us, and all that is not of him in us 
dies, first legally, then in the process of sanctification in which the real which he intends in us rises out of the death that we pass through. Now, this process happens over and over as we grow and are changed from one level of glory to another till we all are fully like him. So James and Paul, other writers of the New Testament, were not trying to be hyper-spiritual or super-positivists when they stated, quote, that we are to rejoice when we go through various trials and temptations. I used to read those verses and think, man, it's just so unrealistic. But I didn't know what they knew. They weren't talking religious. They were informed of what this process is, and so they wanted it to be very much at work in the lives of God's people. Because the human weakness, the supernatural power that marry together and produce redemption, uh, that somehow transcends the obstacle of the human weakness and results in an outcome of life over death. This is, this is the, the whole core of the story. Your story. When I say that the, our weakness and his strength marry and produce uh, redemption, I, I, that means we're not the, we, we don't produce anything. I told you in our last time together, my strength doesn't add anything to God and my weakness doesn't take anything away from God. Uh, all of all of it is Him. He who begun a good work in us will finish it. But all I have to do is show up. <laughs> that's that's my part in it. My strength is perfected in His weakness. You know, we quote that as if Paul said it, but it was actually the Lord Jesus who said that. Jesus said to Paul in Second Corinthians twelve, uh, when He was pleading with the Lord for deliverance from this ongoing struggle. He said, my strength, Paul, is perfected in your weakness. So then Paul says in response to that, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that becomes the pattern truth for all of us. So it then makes sense for Paul to say in Romans 5 and for James to say in the first chapter of his letter, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and temptations and battles, for the trying of your faith develops endurance. At the end of the age, that which was sown in weakness will be raised in power. But Paul tells us in Romans 8 that that same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us and will make us alive in our mortal bodies also. And if you read Romans 8 verses 1 through 15 in its full context, you see that Paul is not just referring to the climax of history when we will be raised from the dead. That's the ultimate climax of the entire story. That's the happy ending. But he's speaking to us uh, of, of this process being the way we live our entire lives uh, while we're awaiting that day. Also, in this text, he addresses our deliverance from fear. That's in that same text. We're delivered from fear as we learn to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us more and more of how to, to live in in God's love and to call him Abba, Papa. See here, that's just another way of saying what John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And there's the perfect love is the father heart of God. This is another reference to how uh, this is a process and that we should take comfort in the fact that it's a process. It's a revelation given by the Holy Spirit and just because 
we are Christians, it doesn't mean we automatically have that revelation. And so we receive it and learn to, to grow in it. To me, it's very comforting to note that Paul reveals God's intentions for how we are to grow and what we are to grow into. But at the same time, Paul never holds back confessing his own areas of weakness where this perfection has not yet um, been accomplished. And he tells us the ultimate that we are to attain to and expect while at the same time making provisions for the comfort and care of those who aren't anywhere near there yet. So this is, see how relational this is? I mean, it's not ever just me and Jesus privately, although that is the that is the source of whatever love and, and growth I experience. It, it comes from my private intimacy with him. God is never going to allow us to hide in a cave somewhere and just nurture our relationship with him. The proof that we have a relationship with him is that we love those that he loves and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Now just notice just a few things that Paul says uh, in his letters. This is the this is the goal. This is this is what you can expect while you don't yet live in it. The, the opening verse that we've been focusing on, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. But how many of you have fear and don't feel powerful and don't feel loving and feel crazy? Well, that's that's not meant to make you feel worse. All these promises are not meant to make you feel put down. I mean, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, he wasn't writing it to make him feel ashamed, but to encourage him. Uh, he writes to the Ephesians uh, to, that you will know the love of God that surpasses mere human knowledge so that you may become filled with all the fullness of God. Now, do, when you read that, does that make you feel lousy because you are not yet filled with all the fullness of God and you don't know the love of God that surpasses your mere human knowledge? Or does it make you rejoice in what you've been promised and what you're headed for? These verses are not goals that you are to try to attain in your own strength. God will bring you. This is your inheritance. This is your future. Then he says, uh, he says, we exhort every man and, and, and woman in order to present them perfect in Christ, he says in Colossians. Well, you're not there yet. Don't let the verse put you down. Let it build you up. Uh, he says to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians 3, we behold as in a glass the face of the Lord and are being changed from one level of glory to another. He says in Second Corinthians 5, we all know this verse, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. How many times have you read that and felt like, well, I must not even be in Christ because old things haven't passed away and all things are becoming new. Well, yeah, they are. The fact that you're upset about what you're not and that you long to transcend it is evidence of the spirit of truth that's working in you. Would you lament what you're not in Christ yet manifesting, what you're, what you're not manifesting of his character if you didn't belong to him? I don't know too many pagans that sit around in a bar room getting drunk because I'm just not enough like Jesus yet. It just bums me out, so I'm getting drunk. Religion just freaks me out what it does to us. The very thing that was meant for our comfort, we somehow turn into a baseball bat to beat ourselves up with. Anyway, 
These, these are just a smattering of statements that fill the New Testament about our true nature in Christ. But it was to Timothy, Paul's closest spiritual son, that Paul exhorts to stir up on purpose what was given to him by the Holy Spirit. And this statement implies that if Timothy does not purposefully stir up what was given to him, he will sink into a place of increasing weakness and fear and failure. Now, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. This is not said in any spirit of, of criticism. It's, it's a call upward and an awakening. Timothy's weak. God is strong. And the third fact is God has come to help Timothy transcend his weakness and manifest a strength through his weakness that is not his own. I love the way Paul says God has not given us the spirit of fear. I think Timothy knows Paul well enough to know in no way is Paul accusing or chastising or speaking down to him. He's calling him up to where the Lord is, not not uh, not where Paul is, except to the degree that where, that Paul is where the Lord is, because Paul's got his own version of weakness. Look at First Corinthians nine twenty two: "To the weak I became weak, so that I might gain the weak." Romans fifteen one: "We who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves." Romans fourteen one. Receive the person who is weak in faith and don't judge them because of their doubts. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Strengthen the weak. Comfort the feeble-minded. This word feeble-minded here, I love Ray Comfort's autobiography. The title of it is Comfort, the feeble-minded. But the word feeble-minded here in the Greek is actually small souled, small souled. This this is not necessarily referring to people with brain maladies or or uh, uh, some kind of a formation deficiency. Although of course it includes that, but he it's talking here about people who, for whatever reason, have had wounds in their lives that have diminished their capacity to grow up. Uh, and that would include almost all of us, wouldn't it, in some form or other? And so some of us are strong in some areas and, and feeble-minded in others. And others of us would be strong in the areas we're weak in. And, you know, you see? So therefore, Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 26, which we won't take the time to read, but I hope you will do it on your own. The strong members of the body should give the greater deference to the weaker members. It seems that the idea throughout the New Testament is not that some of us are supermen and others are weaklings, but that some are strong in some areas and others are weak in others, and we need each other so that we may grow up into people who are strong all around but it's a process that includes our relationship both to the Lord and to each other. This is Ephesians chapter 4. And part of that process is our need for each other. God does in and through his people. This would help us understand why Jesus makes the two great commandments into one in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. The Lord your God Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is equal to the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for instance, this entire letter to Timothy is written in the context of Paul's being imprisoned, facing impending execution, and having been betrayed or abandoned by many of his closest friends. Only a few years before his final imprisonment, he writes in 2 Corinthians 2 that he didn't want his spiritual family to be ignorant of what he had been through. He says in chapter 1, quote, The trouble we faced in Asia pressed us out of all measure, took us beyond our strength, even to the point that we despaired of life. In chapter 2, he describes and, and uh, adds some details. He, he says that the source of some of his suffering was that he was carrying at the same time that he was facing all these battles, his deep burden over the brokenness and sin of the Corinthian church. So he says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote you with many tears. I mean, can you re- relate to this? He's He's got all these battles, spiritual battles, then on top of that he finds out there's all kind of crazy sin going on in the lives of people he loves like his own children. I can relate to that. I say that humbly and respectfully. I'm no Paul, but I can sure relate to that. Uh, Much affliction and anguish with many tears. Then in chapter 4 he says, I had no rest in my spirit because I couldn't find Titus. I can relate to that. You ever been in a situation where you're looking for someone who's precious to you and the war is getting hotter and you're in some situation where you can't locate them and you can't find each other and there's no cell phone and you don't know how to make contact? And he says, I got anxious. I, 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 say, I, I love it when, you know, Paul, I, I get much more comfort out of Paul talking about his weakness and his struggles because I, I can relate to that a lot more realistically. But then I have to go beyond just relating to that and recognize this quiet power in him that carried him in spite of these anguishing moments. Then you turn to chapter 7 of Second Corinthians and he goes into more detail about what happened in Macedonia. He says, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. The Kassira translation of this says, we could find no comfort for this weak frame of, of ours. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were battles. Inside were fears. But God, who comforts those who are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, think about three aspects of this. We could spend our whole time just on this, but number one, Paul understands our human frailty is subject to attack, and he doesn't try to be super spiritual about it. I know some pointy-headed people who actually will read that and say, well, you know, if Paul knew as much about faith as he should have known, he wouldn't have had those moments. And people like that, just I just don't don't waste time listening to. Shouldn't even waste time quoting them, actually. But there's so many of them I run into. Uh, number two, Paul needs human help. Paul recognizes that God has ordained human relationships uh, as one of the means that uh, develops in him power and love and a sound mind. 
he attributes, number three, the coming of that help in Titus as being the coming of God on his behalf. God came through. Titus showed up. Titus and God referring to each, uh, you know, they're the same, they're the same event. There's too large a subject here to examine the huge theme of human relationships as the way God transforms us and teaches us how to love. Hopefully, in later sessions, we can examine some of the aspects of this. But let me just mention here that this dance that I talked about uh, between the power and love of God and the expression of human love and courage in the face of great danger is spelled out in many pictures, but none is as meaningful as a tiny little reference in this letter to Onesephorus. Uh, I hope we'll have time later to look at Onesephorus and just get into the background of what happened in this story. Because if you understand it, it will, it will fill in so many of the blanks that you have in your mind when you just try to read the New Testament uh, at face value. Um, there's nothing wrong with reading the New Testament at face value, but it is so much richer when you begin to find out these human elements. I think sometimes we, we read these stories and we forget these were written by very human people, two very human people, and they didn't have the years of religious uh, misinterpretation and uh, uh, so forth that we have weaved around them. So when we read them, we don't get uh, the, the, the depth of what's happening on the human level, and as a result, we end up uh, missing, missing the point. Or, if not missing the point, uh, dulling it, you know, greatly diminishing it. So look, Paul says here, uh, he sums up this entire picture of our weakness and God's strength and the dance between the two that produces eternal results uh, in in some of these verses. Uh, listen in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. He says, the whole point is, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed always bearing about in our frail human body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Can you hold on to that the next time you feel troubled on every side but not distressed? See, you got troubled on every side. We, we think, well, that is distressed. No, the word here in Greek means I'm, I'm surrounded, but I'm not crushed by them. I'm surrounded by stuff that ought to be killing me, but it's not killing me. I'm perplexed. The, the, the word perplexed there has to do with things I cannot figure out because I just don't have enough information or, or there's too much going on that's crooked. But I'm not in despair over it. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. Even when everybody that I love leaves me, I'm not forsaken cast down but I'm not destroyed and I'm bearing in my physical body uh, 
the idea here is uh, that his body is experiencing some of what Jesus bore on the cross. He's not saying he's completing what Jesus didn't complete on the cross. He's saying that, that he, he takes comfort in what Jesus did on the cross uh, so that his own weak body that is suffering uh, gains strength from that. Not just psychological strength, but the real presence, which is power, which manifests as love, gives him the soundness of mind to endure whatever he's going through in his mortal body. Now, finally, we're getting to the point that I've been wanting to get to, and that is, what is the meaning here of of a sound mind? Uh, It's translated from a Greek word that is untranslatable. Uh, Saphronismos does not really have an English equivalent. So some translations you read says uh, uh, a sound mind. Other translations say discipline. And neither one of those captures the passion of this word or the strength of this word. William Barclay puts it like this. He says, uh, it's control of oneself in the face of panic or passion. Saphronismus is control of one's self in the face of panic or passion. <clears throat> this would put it in the same category as the, uh, the word shalom in Hebrew. Shalom doesn't just mean peace uh, in the sense of the absence of difficulty. Shalom is both positive and negative. Shalom is freedom from negative things, fear, agitating passions, moral conflicts. Think about that. Shalom is freedom from fear, but also agitating passions and moral conflicts. Shalom uh, is is the, the, the sense of self-containment that a man has when he's confronted by temptation, uh, say for, let's say for sexual immorality, and uh, yeah, he feels the pull, but he he doesn't have agitating passions that would drive him toward a mindless fulfillment of that appetite. And as a result of that, he doesn't have moral conflicts. He's not uh, duplicitous. There's not a part of him that uh, belongs to the old life and a part of him that belongs to the new life, and he's schizophrenic between the two. That's a wonderful thing. But shalom is also positive. It's freedom for self-control, energy for living, and the power to give to others. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. The fear is a negative that drains your energy. Stopping the fear is getting back up to zero. But God wants you to live far above zero. He wants you not just holding off the negative, but using the energy you would have wasted on the negative, on self-control to give to others. And that's what love is. So in the face of fear, where everybody's freaking out, you're stable and calm and are able then to call on your energies and, and, uh, and to serve other people. Perfect love, casting out fear. Uh, shalom is wholeness rather than div- divisiveness. I mean, it's wholeness. It's You're not divided on the inside. You're not pulled in two opposite directions. 
This is integrity. This is the meaning of the word integrity, undividedness, inner solidness with no divisions, no breaches in the wall, you know, comfort, surrounded by a solid wholeness of protection. If you want to go into real in-depth study of this, we have six hours uh, on it in our tape library called uh, our CD, CD library, whatever, uh, called Integrity of Heart, if you want to obtain that. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 says, He who has no rule, no governing power over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. At best, such brokenness in us is manifested in moral weakness and character flaws, even crooked behavior in some ways. But on, there's deeper versions of it that can include criminal behavior and even forms of mental illness and if not healed, such breaches in the soul are, are often open people to, in their inner life to the infiltration of the demonic. Uh, that's too large a subject to get into here. Um, but it's, you, you just need to have it in your thinking. A sound mind is one which can maintain under pressure. Uh, Jesus says, for instance, in Luke chapter 21, verse 19, by your endurance, you will maintain your souls. He's talking here of the end of the age. He's also referring to the, the, the terrible time coming at the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, he says, by your endurance, you will maintain your souls. Uh, going through difficult things builds endurance, Paul says in Romans 5. And endurance manifests itself in ways uh, that that strengthen us for greater difficulty, just like lifting weights tears the muscle down so it rebuilds stronger. Jesus is saying here, by the things you have to go through and, and the endurance you manifest through it, it'll help you maintain control of your mind, control of your soul. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider Jesus. Keep your mind focused on Jesus so that you don't become weary and give up in your minds. And then Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, being renewed in the spirit of your mind is addressing two things that actually could be a study all on their own. The first aspect of it has to do with, uh, notice Paul, the way he words it, the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind is more than just learning information. Uh, you know, I, I have a question on my desk here from somebody that w was asking, it's a very logical question, very common question. What's the difference between spirit, soul, and body? I mean, what you know, what is the soul as opposed to what is the spirit and all of that? Of course, uh, Watchman Nee did a classic book called The Spiritual Man on that subject. But when he finished writing it, he said he didn't like it because it was too perfect. It was, and what he was saying was he he had given himself over to that Western Greco-Roman way of thinking that puts everything in neat categories like Aristotelian logic would do without uh, the, the, the poetry of, of the Hebraic heart. 
So I think I can say without trying to bore you with too much detail that being renewed in the spirit of your mind has to do not only with the informing the mind with truth, but with uh, filling your heart. And there's another word that people get confused by. The heart in the Bible is the whole man. Uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength is referring to the, your core your core being, your intellect, your imagination, which produces your uh, uh, emotions, which stirs your appetites. He says, uh, when, when you get the core settled, then the rest of your being begins to be strengthened from that core. So being renewed in the spirit of your mind is uh, maybe a good parallel would be, I just used the word, uh, you know, we talk in, in bodybuilding and in, in uh, weightlifting about strengthening the core. People work their arms and they work their legs and they work all kind of little different parts of their body that they think uh, they want to improve for whatever reason. But they neglect the core. And the core is is the the, the center of you from which all your uh, appendages gain their ability to express themselves the way they were created. And the, the core of me, my heart, is not just my emotions, as English romanticism has perverted it. So we say, uh, I know I betrayed our relationship, but I love you with all my heart. Or we say, uh, God, I know that I sinned, but God knew my heart when I did it. Well, yeah, he, he knew your heart. Your heart was divided. You, you were double-minded. And James tells us that a double-minded man or woman is unstable in all of their actions, unstable in all of their ways. So, uh, you know, appealing to, well, God knows my heart is just a misunderstanding of the word heart. Best thing to do is say, Lord, you know my heart, and my heart was divided. I sinned against you because my heart was divided. Uh, and so David, you know, prayed the prayer of David in Psalm 86. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Now, that's too large a subject to address here, and I've addressed it in greater detail in many other subjects like the Integrity of Heart series and the Fire of God series and other series that you can obtain if you're interested in more detail. But on the other part of the the other part of this, uh, besides not having a divided heart, we also need to be fed on the truth. Paul makes statements to to Timothy. Uh, if if you read First and Second Timothy together, and also Titus, the pastoral epistles. You realize how often Paul makes references to truth. He makes strong references to the coming seduction by powers of darkness to seduce people away from the truth, that there will be false teachers and false prophets and false manifestations. And this includes occult manifestations that will seek to imitate the Holy Spirit and seduce people off into weirdness because they are attracted to power instead of to relationship with the Lord. Now, Chesterton said one time, quote, the reason for having an open mind is the same reason as having an open mouth. You are meant to close it around something solid and nourishing. 
The Greek philosophers in Acts 17 were always hoping to hear some new thing. Many so-called believers seem to do that too. It's one thing to always want to learn and grow. That's good. But we need to humbly listen to others and, and make adjustments in our thinking and behaving as we grasp more truth. But such truth builds on its previous forms. It will never be a, quote, new truth that diverges from the foundational truth. It's not a matter of constantly seeking something so new that it contradicts foundational reality. Christ is the cornerstone. If you're responding to some new version of him that denies his deity, his humanity, his atoning sacrifice and resurrection, then you are embracing the new, thinking that you're embracing uh, some greater revelation that's going to help you, but you're actually not embracing anything new. You're You're denying the true, not embracing the new. Instead of closing your open mouth on something solid and nourishing, or instead of closing your mind around something true and unchanging, the constantly open mouth leads to starvation, and the constantly open mind leads to mindless irrationality. Such open-mindedness will allow your brain to fall out of your head, and worse, may cost you your soul. Much mental illness and emotional suffering comes from lack of solid foundations being in place. Truth informs our conscience. You realize that? Truth informs our conscience. And the absence of truth deforms our conscience. That's why you can't let your conscience be your guide. Uh, You listen to your conscience because it's the voice that uh, can quote to you truth that was given you when you were small. Or sadly, it can quote to you oppressive, legalistic, harsh, unloving words that were imparted on you when you were small. That's why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Uh, Because the conscience informs the will, and the will controls our emotions and our appetites. If there's no clear truth, then everything is up for grabs, and that's where people are today. I'm just, I was amazed yesterday. I just happened to run across, uh, I mean, I, I hate, stepping into the internet is like stepping into the Ganges River. I mean, you may have uh, everything imaginable floating by you because they do all their business in the one river. And that's the way the, that's the, way the internet is. But every now and then I go on there to try to find some uh, subject or some concept that I need to research. And I run across this website that some some wacko has put up. He's supposed to be a Christian. And it's on uh, the biblical foundation for polygamy. And uh, using all the stories from the scriptures, all, you know, well, it's, you know, well, it's in the Bible. I mean, based on his logic, it's biblical to, to take a tent peg and a mallet and drive it through somebody's skull because it's in the Bible. They did it in the Bible. Anyway, uh, there's just no end to the crazy craziness out there. Uh, but this is because truth is rejected. The concept of truth is rejected. And again, uh, it makes me think of Chesterton who said, uh, there's only one place to stand. You can fall in all other directions. We can avoid such pitfalls if we remember that there is such a thing as truth, and it is knowable 
Uh, and if that's not true, then God is not true, and God is not knowable. But let all men be a liar, and God alone be true. We come to know truth by revelation, given in the scriptures. Uh, I sometimes think I need to spend a, 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 some time doing just an entire series on why Scripture is trustworthy, why Scripture is authoritative, why you need to tremble at God's Word. Uh, you know, uh, Isaiah chapter 8, I believe, uh, or is it chapter 64, 65, where he says, to this one I will respond, to the one who trembles at my word. Isaiah 8 says, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And uh, I never, I mean, I've been teaching this subject for 35 years, and I'll tell you, I, I, even I underestimated how crooked the, the teaching would become of people claiming to have revelation from the Bible and just how crazy it would get. But we, but we come to know truth by revelation of Scripture. But Scripture is not where you stay. <clears throat> you never go beyond Scripture. I mean, when you say somebody's got a revelation that is beyond Scripture, well, then they're way beyond the presence of God and the affirmation of the Holy Spirit, and they're out in the dark. But at the same time, you've got biblicists, bibliolaters, I call them, who are so wrapped up in worshiping the Bible instead of the God of the Bible that all they want to talk about is the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. But if you start pointing to them things in the Bible that doesn't fit their structure, then they start calling you a heretic. You know, the Bible tells me that I'm to hear the voice of God. But I've actually had Christian leaders argue with me about the danger of telling people that if they listen to God, they'll hear his voice. Because, you know, you know what happens to people that hear voices? Uh, you know, uh, we just we just do the Bible. Well, Jesus confronted the Pharisees with that same attitude. John chapter 5, verse 38, 39. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have life. And they point to me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. You can be full of scriptural information and miss the author of the book. We've said that many, many, many times. We also come to know truth not only by revelation in scripture, but we come to know truth by relationship. For all life is ultimately relational, not just propositional. Satan seeks to destroy our relationships. He doesn't mind if we're memorizing Scripture as long as we don't obey the Scripture that says love one another. And boy, have I met people who know all kinds of Scripture, and I wouldn't let them take care of my dog for fear they would abuse it. Anyway, Satan seeks to destroy our relationships first with God, then with ourselves. And, and, and with others. I'm not so sure the order of that is is uh, necessary to focus on. I've seen people lose their relationship with God because they wouldn't reconcile with each other. I've seen people lose relationship with themselves because they wouldn't rightly relate to God. I've seen people lose right relationship with others because they wouldn't work out things 
broken in themselves. I mean, it, it, there's there's no hierarchy here except the obvious one. Everything begins with our relationship to God, of course. But we're divided from God, and and as a result of that, we need to be re- reconciled to Him. He does not seek to be reconciled to us because He's not He's not the problem. The Bible never tells us that God is reconciling himself to us. We've got to get reconciled to him. So, see, there's there's your beginning place to stand. There's your solid beginning. There's, there's the core issue. Uh, and there's a childlikeness and humility in that that gives me freedom to not look at all the other issues, all the other isms, all the other ideas. You may remember that in our last hour, I started out by reading to you a letter from a, a seminary student that had written me, and he he's trying to learn everything, and as a result, he's losing everything. He's trying to grab every concept, and as a result, he can't hold on to any concept. Uh, he's scattered and divided, and his inner life has no core strength because he is not just double-souled. He is uh, dissected, uh, and as a result of that, he is uh, bordering on mental breakdown. Uh, I trust that he's doing better now. But uh, uh, anyway, it is we who are estranged from God, and a right view of the heart of God, and the character of God, and the will of God is vital for us to have a foundation upon which to establish our footing in order to have a sound mind on which we can easily uh, then build. We are divided from others. Much of our inner shakiness is rooted in our lack of relationship. Though tons of pages have been written on this, still it seems most people in Western culture are incapable of entering deep, warm, lasting relationships. In the absence of this, leaves individuals at a loss for knowing who they are. We learn who we are from our parents, from our siblings, then from our friends, then from our wider interaction. And and that continues. Uh, That's why I started out this time together focusing on Paul's strength came from his union with the Lord. But at the same time, Paul wasn't claiming to be some super spiritual being that didn't need humans. Uh, when the humans abandoned him, he went to his core union with Christ. But he didn't live in his core union with Christ at, with the uh, in uh, excluding other people. Does that make sense? Anyway, when we lose sight of, of who God is and who we are, we're then on the verge of losing ourselves. A disintegrating process begins within us that opens us up to dangerous, floundering searches for an anchor. Now, that search for an anchor to give us a place to to feel secure may be a retrograde emotional dependency that we think is love, or it may be the return of old destructive habits, sinful behaviors. But more often, I'm finding, as I've already stated, more and more people search for some so-called new truth, which can seduce them into gross spiritual error. This is when the enemy can enter in with every sort of distortion and deception under the sun. And again, I've said that's too large a subject to try to address here. It's going to be something we need to talk about uh, in another context. Again, I've I've already addressed it in some uh, previous series, the battle for truth. 
the series called The Spirit of Deception, and one called In the Last Days. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but put forth by the slight of cunning, tricky, false teachers who lie in wait in order to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him in all things. See how this it's propositional truth, but it's also relationship. Here we encounter one of those paradoxes. The warning is not to be a child, easily seduced and blown about by winds of worldly wisdom. And how do we escape that trap? By being childlike in our hearts toward God and toward one another. I always think of Twilight Paris's wonderful song that came out in the early 80s called The Warrior is a Child. It says, Lately I've been winning battles left and right. But even soldiers can get wounded in the fight. People say that I'm amazing, strong beyond my years. But they don't see inside of me I'm hiding all the tears. They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and cry for just a while. Because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. Now, in Psalm 18, you have a great picture of the warrior who also knows his dependence. And uh, if you've forgotten where we were starting out in this study of strength from knowing God, uh, our main focus here is how to maintain a sound mind when everything around you seems lost. When everybody around you seems to have betrayed you. And in Psalm 18, we have a a great picture of that. I'm going to, I'm going to pick out a few aspects of it. Uh, I hope you'll read it all on your own. And I'll tell you, if you have a copy of, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, Psalms, you might want to write, uh, read it from there too. If I have time, I might read some of that to, to you. But in Psalm 18, he, David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust. Now here he's he's talking about God surrounding him. Uh, this This reference in Hebrew to God being a rock is there's a play on words in it in Hebrew because it has to do with the surrounding love of a mother, uh, the idea of, of holding the baby close. Uh, I think about Paul's statement, without were fightings, within were fears. Well, here in Psalm 18, David says, without are these, outside of me are these battles all around me, pressing in on me, and within me uh, are fears. Outside, God is protecting me from the dangers. But then he refers to what God's doing on the inside of him. In verse 4, he says, the sorrows of death surrounded me. The flood of ungodly men made me afraid. Verse 5, the sorrow of hell surrounded me. This phrase here, the sorrows of hell, uh, implies not just fear of death or fear of the darkness, but it's all the agony of life living life in its uncertainty. That's the idea here, the pangs of, of, of impending doom. 
That's the idea. It's not, it's not, it's not hell in the sense of we think of it as uh, dying and going to hell because you're lost. It's the idea of just all of the suffering of life that is Im, Im, implied by life's lack of security and lack of stability and lack of continuity. All of that. The sorrows of hell surrounded me and the snares of death closed in on me. Uh, the idea here is there's traps. I can't see them all. I can't possibly see them all. Boy, did, is that not true? Every time I turn around, I'm being told by somebody, some electronic device I need to protect me from traps, to protect me from... And, and of course, you know, we're at a time now where you can be sued if you have an opinion that differs from somebody else. Uh, you know, if I thought about all that all the time, I'd go nuts. Uh, I, I have to trust that into the hands of the Lord. I, I do what's necessary. I lock my door at night, you know. Uh, I don't leave my credit cards laying out on the counter for somebody to look at. I'm not stupid. But I'm not, I'm also not going to be stupid from trying to protect myself from every possible uh, attack of the of the devil. Anyway, the flood of ungodly men made me afraid. The, the snares of death closed in on me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, one of the things that is so important in the Psalms, you know, David, I get more and more of this question, and it's an understandable question, you know, how come David had so many wives? Like God is into polygamy, uh, or God is into uh, multiple sex partners. This is too big to get into. I shouldn't even mention it, but let me just say here there is a progression of revelation that God holds people responsible for. David knew the law of Moses forbade him to multiply to himself wives. He disobeyed that. The whole story of David's life is sorrow upon sorrow, all connected to his disobedience to that, that scripture. So um, lay that aside. God, I, I leave David to God, you know, it's just, God says David was a man after his own heart, and God knew that David would fulfill his will in all of David's life, regardless of his stumblings. I want to tell you, I take comfort in that. Uh, I, I'm more aware right now of my failures and my weaknesses and my lapses than I've ever been in my entire life. And it's driving me to my God. And this is why I love David so much. Uh, in his weakness, he he reverts back to a, the, the little shepherd boy. Not in some retrograde uh, disintegration thing like we just previously spoke about, but in, in a humility and a uh, resting in God as his, his Abba. When my mother and father cast me away, the Lord will pick me up. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, when I was surrounded by distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. That speaks for itself, but I love to just dwell on it. They were too strong for me. And I'll tell you right now, uh, I'm not trying to impress you with all that we're doing, but 
Can I just tell you, because you, you know, you, you folks that listen to this every month, do you realize you are the backbone of what we do? The nightlight is not an aside that we do uh, while we're doing other things. This is, this is the spinal cord of this ministry. Because you do what you do, we're able to do everything else we do. And the, the increased re- requests for help, the increased requests for counseling, for support, for working with indigent families and for helping people who are in dire straits, many of them leaders, many of them pastors uh, who are in desperate trouble emotionally and relationally and other ways, uh, it's too strong for me. Uh, I know some of you have written me, and uh, forgive me if I have not answered you, but the stack just gets heavier every day, and electronics makes the stack uh, almost unbearable. Uh, it's decreasing in the mailbox and increasing electronically, but that just means it gets here faster. <laughs> so um, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be pitiful. I'm just trying to tell you this. I feel surrounded by things that are too strong for me, and so you know what. Down in verse 29, if you look in, in verse 29, uh, unless you're driving in your car, then don't look. Uh, by you, Lord, I have run through a troop and leapt over a wall. He says, I, I've learned from you how to, to engage in battle, uh, and I'm able to do things far beyond my strength. But here's that paradox between our weakness and God's strength. He says in, in verse 35, it's your gentleness that has made me great. Your gentleness. In closing, First Peter chapter one verse thirteen, and read all of First Peter uh, chapter one, please. But uh, Peter says in verse thirteen, uh, "Gird up the loins of your mind." David says, "You've girded me up. Uh, you, you strengthened my core." Peter says, "Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope with complete confidence in the grace." that is manifested fully in you at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you gird up the loins of your mind? Well, he lists them in 1 Peter chapter 1. God chose you. God bought you with his blood. God begat you. He will resurrect you. He gives you eternal inheritance that can never be corrupted. We are kept by his power. Therefore, you can endure any season of difficulty, no matter how seemingly hard, because the end result is already settled in Christ. We're out of time. God bless you.